0: The audiences weren't used to seeing women on stage and when they did, they thought it was a, a booby prize. They thought... Oh, excuse the pun. They thought it was... It that'd, was be like, a great, that'd be a great
1: <laughs> comedy <not.
0: laughs> That might be my show title, booby prize. I won't do that. <laughs> Write that down, someone.
1: This week on Walking the Dog, I popped to Brighton to take a walk with the comedian Angela Barnes and her adorable cockapoo, Tina. Angela is well known for her comedy work on radio and TV. She's a hugely popular regular on Mock the Week And one of the country's busiest live stand-ups, the woman never stops doing gigs. We had the loveliest time on our stroll, and she told me all about her fascinating life. We chatted about her fabulously unconventional dad, who inspired her to go into comedy, her love of performing, and what drives her as a comic. She also told me about the ADD diagnosis she had recently, which came as a huge relief. And we chatted about her husband, Matt, who she obviously adores almost as much as Tina. Angela, by the way, does a genius podcast with John O'Farrell. It's called We Are History and I totally recommend it. It covers all sorts of major world events from Watergate to the Profumo scandal. But it's all done in this very chatty, fun, entertaining way. So do get involved. I loved my walk with Angela. She's a very kind, genuine and also hilariously funny person to spend a morning with. And as for Tina, she is the cutest thing on four legs I have ever seen Okay, I'm sorry, Raymond, the second cutest. Needy much? I really hope you enjoy my walk with Angela. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. I'll stop talking now and hand over to the woman herself. Here's Angela and Tina.
0: Oh, Angela, look at that. Pretty church already. Look at that. Isn't that idyllic? It's like a little postcard. It's so picturesque here. <laughs> Hello. Oh,
1: there we go. Hello Brighton and Hove City Council, man. <laughs> <laughs> There's oh. two are there everywhere. Council art in force. You see, the, the concept of the man in white van is very different down here in picturesque
0: Brighton and Hove. Two, I don't know. Is that just us getting older, Emily? There's two white vans, not one wolf whistle. I'm, I'm insulted. I don't know about you. Do you know, I cried out for some sexist, vaguely
1: abusive comments and there they they were none. None. none at all. He didn't objectify us at all. I know. He went about his business. So,
0: I've seen a sign here. Stanmer Tea Rooms. Oh, look at your little face. (laughs) That's made you really happy. It's very quaint here. This is Stanmer Park we're in, and you've got a little Stanmer Village. And there's been outcry recently, Emily, because they've started charging for the car parks. They always used to be free. And uh, there's been slight local outcry with the dog walking community. But it's, you know, it's a pound an hour. I don't mind paying a pound to walk around a pretty park. I mean, with this vista, yeah. Oh, listen to those seagulls! <laughs> That's the most Brighton sound, isn't it? I don't even hear them anymore. <laughs> I'm so excited. I think Tina's going to do a poo. I think we've we just started and already, she's like, it's all very well, but yeah, here we go. And Tina is, um, you'll see this, she does a thing that apparently I've never seen another dog do. She'll do a poo in one place and then she'll move on, still in position, and just spread them around. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to chafe her. Oh, you done? Sometimes I have to chase her quite far as she dots little poos around the countryside.
1: She takes a sort of speculates or accumulate yes. approach.
0: <laughs> oh, Tina! There we go. Good girl.
1: So, I'm going to introduce you now, Angela. OK. I'm so thrilled. I adore this woman. And we've come up to visit her. Come down... I should say, people always make that mistake. <laughs> I've come down to visit Angela in Brighton, which is a place of residence. And I'm with the very wonderful Angela Barnes and Tina. This is Tina. Angela, it's so lovely to have you. Now, firstly, we should say we're in Sandler Park in we Brighton. Are. But let's get on to the main attraction this one.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I know, I get it, everywhere we go, I, I get it. She, she is the main attraction. I took her on stage with me once, I did a tour show. And um, on a tour show, come on Tina. On a tour show, I'll go on stage, do a couple of minutes, introduce my support act. And uh, I thought, I'll take Tina on with me, she's still a puppy, in that first bit, <laughs> and introduce the support act. And of course the crowd, were, oh, the dog. And When I came on to do my show afterwards, they were just like, where's the dog? <laughs> I, I thought that's it, I'm never doing that I'm never letting her upstage me again <laughs> And lovely Tina is what kind of a dog is Tina? She's a cockapoo but she's a very small cockapoo Dad was a toy poodle mm-hmm. and Mum was a cockapoo so she's mostly poodle Where are you going Tina? She's having a good old sniff um, So she's very poodly and she's quite clever most of the time and then she'll do something phenomenally stupid and we go oh that's the cocker spaniel she's very curly very poodly she drew a haircut actually i had to trim the, because of the sort of lockdown rush of people getting puppies We she's pre-lockdown um you just can't get a booking for a groomer that isn't that a first world problem you just <laughs> can't get a booking for a groomer emily so i've had to like try and trim around her eyes myself so they look a bit mad at the minute we could get an appointment for her to have a haircut but she she hates being brushed so I have to you have to keep her quite short
1: and when did you first get when did Tina come into your life
0: so Tina we got Tina as a puppy we got her in February 2019 so she was born on Christmas day yeah she'll be three on Christmas day but she was um I've always wanted a dog and but I'm very allergic to dogs and ideally i would have got a rescue dog that's what i really wanted to do but i knew that i couldn't what i didn't want to do was get a rescue dog find i was allergic to it and have to you know send it back yeah to, to the, you know that's such a traumatic thing for a dog and also so these i, I hate calling them hyperallergenic brains because they're not but poodle crosses generally i knew i was okay with and um, but they very rarely are in rescues because they're mm. such Sort of well-behaved generally nice dogs you know they oh here we go all oh, right tina calm two? down a couple I of other it. doodles coming they always recognize other poodle crosses hello doodles. Hello. hello hello yes i know yes hello what are these
1: doodles called
0: they love oh, aren't they gorgeous <laughs> she's a cockapoo
1: <laughs>
0: oh. hello freddie no you're gorgeous they're lovely oh they're obviously pups but they're massive tina's she's a bit of a wuss with other dogs sometimes she um and as long as the so in my bag right now i've got some toys i won't mention what they actually are because she'll go mad
1: we should stress these are toys for the dog yes yeah not for me
0: (laughs) (laughs) and if and if there's another dog about and the toys are out then she can be a bit defensive Mm. And she'll start on, I mean, she started on an Alsatian. She's got no idea how tiny she is. She's really ballsy. Um, but well, when she's on the lead, like this, or if she, the toys aren't out, she just wants to play. And sometimes she doesn't quite realise that other dogs aren't always up for it. <laughs> or they might be a bit more boisterous than her.
1: And you were telling me, Sorry. before we met the, uh, we had the interlude with the doodles, yeah. Yeah. you were telling me about Tina's origin story. Oh, yeah.
0: So, so um, yeah, we couldn't, we just, waited and waited for a um a poodle cross to come up in our local rescues and things and just wasn't and then i eventually started to say well i think we should look for a puppy and i did this my, my husband was very dog ambivalent at first but it was a deal breaker for me i've never wanted kids but i've always wanted a dog and uh, so he was like okay fine we'll get a dog you know and we went to look at that we went to visit the breeder when she was probably about five six weeks old and she was the... Are you a runt of the litter? I think you can still say runt of the litter, can you? But she was. She was tiny. She was bullied by her brothers and sisters. And um, she played an absolute blinder with Matt, my husband, because he picked her up, or I picked her up, gave her a cuddle, handed her to Matt, and she just sort of put his head, her head in his coat and snuggled it, and that was it. From that moment, it's been a love affair. He's besotted with her. For someone who was... Not a dog person. Yeah. I, he's so completely in love with her. We did that thing, you know, because everywhere we'd read, they'd said, whatever you do, don't just pay the deposit there. Don't go away, think about it. Oh. And I think we got as far as a petrol station at a roundabout up the road. Got the money out, drove back, you pay the deposit. <laughs> I was exactly
1: <laughs> the same when I got Raymond. Everyone gave me this sort of list of things I was meant to do. And I did none of them because...
0: The heart wants what it wants. It really does. And we, by the time we'd met her, for five minutes, we were in love. There was no <laughs> way we weren't bringing her home with us. And um, we were lucky because the breeder said that another couple had sort of shown an interest in her. But um, she said, <laughs> she said I like you two better. So we were like, yes, we won. <laughs> <laughs> so, you yeah, won. that was it. She came and lived with us. So she's been with us for three years in February. And, yeah, can't imagine not having her, really. And did you grow up with dogs or pets then? Well we did, because I was so allergic to dogs, my, my mum and dad would have loved to have had a dog and they had dogs before I came along, but I was so allergic, they were like we just can't have a dog in the house, you know, it's, um, but I had cousins who lived nearby who had dogs and so I did have dogs around and I'd have to dose myself up with antihistamines and play with them. And then when I, when I went away to university, both of my parents then got dogs. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's my, you're never coming home again, is it? That's, <laughs> I get the message. Thank God she's out. <laughs> so we were dog people who couldn't have a dog, you know, and, and because when I was growing up and in the 80s these labradoodles and cockapoos weren't a thing, you know nobody knew about dog breeds that were hyperallergenic or that were less likely to give you allergies and all of that, so it was just a no, we can't bring your dog into the house because you won't be able to you know, and, and also that thing of if it does make you really ill, we're going to have to give it up. That's going to break your heart. You yeah. can't risk that. So, yeah. Um, well, back
1: then in the 80s, it was mainly... I remember everyone had collies. Yeah. You know, those lassies. That was Yeah, my auntie old.
0: Jen had a, a rough collie. Yeah. yeah, Prince, his name was. Of course. Yeah. of course it was Prince. Of course it was Prince. They, what else <laughs> could you call a rough collie? He was beautiful. Terrified of the hoover he was, but he was beautiful.
1: And... We're in uh, Stammer Park today, which is in Brighton. And I'm assuming you moved here as a result of going to the University of Sussex, which is up the road from here.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, I went to Sussex University and then I sort of yo-yoed between Brighton and London my whole life. So I left university, went to London because you think, well, I need to go to London for work. And, you know, and I think when you're in your... When I was in my 20s, London was the place to be where you're trying to make it and you're trying to... But my heart was always in Brighton. I always wanted to come back. And then I moved back here in 2008 um, after a, I, I was with a guy for ages and we split up and um, he'd never wanted to move to Brighton and I had. And I suddenly went, oh, I, I can now <laughs> and came back. But then when I started doing the stand-up a couple of years later, at that time, I, I didn't have a car... And you know, trying to get to gigs on the circuit from Brighton was just a bit of a nightmare. So I moved back to London, um, and then, then I met my now husband, who in London, and I, he'd always lived in London since he'd left university. So I thought, well, that's it. Now I guess I live in London. And it was actually him because we'd come to Brighton quite a lot, and uh, I've still got a lot of friends here. And he's an ultra. He runs ultra marathons. He's we're very different, Emily. We're very different. <laughs> He'll do these 100-mile races, you know. And he just loves round here, you know, running up on the downs and things. He's perfect. Hello, look I'm at your amazing. little coat.
1: What's this, a little chihuahua, is it?
0: Gorgeous. Aren't Be they nice, lovely? Tina. Uh-huh. Good girl. Here we go. they
1: lovely doggies.
0: Are they all chihuahuas? <laughs> oh, OK, all right. Yeah, oh, awesome.
1: chihuahuas.
0: oh, hello.
1: Forms. Chihuahua Staffi. Well Oh, Steffi oh, oh. Steffi. oh wow that's I quite know, a yeah. cross. How did that happen?
0: Yeah. Chihuahua <laughs> Staffy
1: then a chihuahua, chihuahua and the Chihuahua Jet Russell. Chihuahu oh. Staffi, that's quite a date.
0: Yeah, this one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, Tina's best friend's are chihuahua. The mummy
1: was um um uh, chihuahua staffy. Oh. But she made with a, another chihuahua. fascinating, yeah. Angela? I've never seen
0: that. one of you. No. So nice to, so me, so nice to meet you, though. Have a nice Lovely day. Lovely to meet okay. you. Oh,
1: We were saying you've moved to this beautiful, um, to Sussex. Yeah. To beautiful, you don't actually live in Stanmer Park, but you live I in Brighton. I wish Bronson. I did, but no. <laughs> <laughs> And I want to go back, though, to where you were originally from. Yeah, and it was it's Kent that it's you grew up in. Yeah, right? grew up in
0: Maidstone. I was born in Sidcup, grew up in Maidstone. So, two of the most they feel like those sort of towns that you go to when you just want a, a name a boring town, you know, with nothing really to say about it. They're just so I used to think oh, I wish I was in somewhere cool like Manchester <laughs> or you know somewhere that's just got a bit of an edge, got a bit of it's a Maidstone. It's so dull. <laughs> and the thing is, it's. You know kent garden of england and all that and i, I always used to do a joke about it say well Maidstone's where they've hidden the old fridge and a piss stained mattress you know it's, <laughs> it's just this sort of it's surrounded by beautiful places by beautiful countryside lovely villages but it's just a little bit of an edge and it's that sort of i don't know i never really i i when i left i didn't really have any ever have any desire to go back mm. um and i do i go back and visit and some of my best friends live there. Some of my best friends. Some of my best friends. (laughs) (laughs) That was a bit of that (laughs) one.
1: But yeah, it it was just um, Angela. What does this say? Sheep grazing ahead.
0: Ah, yeah, that just means dog needs to stay on leads. That sometimes they graze sheep on little bits of the park, so you have to keep your dog on the leads when they do.
1: Any problems with the sheep? Please (laughs) contact. I mean, what sort of problems? They're
0: they're terrors, these sheep. Honestly, they run riot. You should see them. No, but
1: they've got the names. Any problems with the sheep? I mean, how do they define a problem? I I, I find find their coat a bit rough. (laughs) I find it gave me a dirty look. (laughs) Um, Oh, dear. So, your family life, yeah i want to know a little bit more about because how long you got <laughs> wow well, i feel i already know quite a lot about your dad because yeah. you did a br- you talk, talk about, him, about a him a lot and you actually did a brilliant which i, I i'm sure you can still listen to It's still up there on, um,
0: it's on, right on radio yeah. four
1: yeah on iplayer it was called you can't take it with you and it was sort of a, it's a tribute to your your dad in some ways wasn't it was it?
0: it was he he was um well character is the everything every time you talk about my dad you know you say to someone who knew him what was Derek like he's like oh, he was a character that's the thing that always came out and I think I because he died in 2008 very suddenly he was 60 it was really a reaction to that is why I started doing stand-up so I was 33 when I did my first open spot um you know so I'm a bit of a late developer when it comes to comedy and it was because of that really that that he was a big comedy fan, and we used to watch comedy together. He would come to live comedy with me. I used to run a comedy night in Brighton, so I was a booker, really. And um, and he used to come to that. You know, he'd always say to me, "Why don't you have a go? Go and get." Up. Don't be stupid, Dad. It's for those clever ones. You know, it's for those. Um, and it just ne- I just never did it while well, he was alive. And when he died, I just thought, well, he's you know he was sixty. That's that's oh, And at the time when he died, I was thirty-one. I was like, well, no, I'm over halfway through. I need to think about what I want to do you know and and so it really was as a result of that and of course it's really it's really sad that he never got to see me do it and um I mean part of me is like well thank god because he would have been there in the front row heckling me you know it's just sort of it might have been a disaster if he had been there. Do you think
1: also Angela I don't know I think that's his gift to you you know that the, the him going perhaps you wouldn't have done it if you hadn't
0: have you hadn't have lost your dad, it it does feel like that weirdly. It's because sometimes I feel guilty for feeling that that I go, you know, oh, what what would my life have been like if he hadn't died and I hadn't discovered this and all of that? But you go, well, you can't think like that. And and that was one of my dad's biggest thing. My dad, the, the reason the show was called, you can't take it with you. He was very much an in the moment person, and he always he always said, funny. He said, I'll drop dead at sixty, which is exactly what happened And because that's what happened to his dad, um, and. He was type 1 diabetic, my dad, and of course, when he was diagnosed in the early 50s, it wasn't like it isn't, it wasn't so easy to control. And the problem was when he, it's quite sad really, because he, my dad was very into two things. He really loved motor racing and he really loved, um, he, he really wanted to be a paramedic. That was the story, he wanted to be a paramedic. But in, the day, in those days when he was younger, um, he wasn't allowed a racing license because of his diabetes and he wasn't allowed to be a paramedic because of his diabetes. So his illness had stopped him doing what he really wanted to do through no fault of his own. So what he did, he ended up doing, he like, volunteered with St John's Ambulance and he worked at Browns Hatch. So I spent my entire childhood at, at Browns Hatch racing circuit with my dad. So he worked there. So he found ways to be involved in that world. But I think he never really forgave the diabetes for stopping him mm. having the life he wanted. And so he had a very, well, sod it, I'll do what I like attitude. He did. You know, he really did. And, and he was always like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule the disease. It's not going to rule me. So he just didn't, when he was younger, he didn't really look after himself very well in the way somebody with type 1 diabetes should. Mm. And so by the time he got to his sort of 30s, 40s, the damage had been done, really. By the time he was like, oh, I need to be a bit more careful, the damage was done. And so he had a, a yeah, triple, no, quadruple heart bypass when he was 47. You know, and I think about that a lot. I'm 45 now, you know, Mm. but actually I then think, yeah, it was really sad that he died at 60, but had medical science not got to where it was, Mm. we got that extra 13 years with him that we Mm. might not have had, Mm. you know. Um, So he was very, yeah, grasp it by the horns and, and just do it. And, and the character, like, I I mean, I always say about my dad as well. My dad was a brilliant dad. I was a real daddy's girl and, you know, uh, my parents divorced when I was nine and I would spend my weekends with my dad and loved it. But he was a terrible husband, the worst. <laughs> you know, There's no getting away from that. Brilliant dad, terrible husband. He, he liked the ladies and they liked him because he was a cheeky chappy. You know, and in, in that time, you know, I mean, he would definitely be canceled now. I think he, my dad would not have survived the Me Too movement. I know that and I love him dearly, but he wouldn't. You know, he was a man of his time, shall we say. What did they do, your parents? Because I know your dad, he opened a shop at one point, he didn't did he? He opened a shop at one point. What so kind it's... of shop was it, Angela? <laughs> my dad had a sex shop. So, I know, I know. It, it, it was a bit later. So, for the purpose of comedy, you know, I pretend like my dad had a sex shop when I was a kid. He didn't. He had, my dad had moved through jobs in the way I did when I was younger. I think my dad and I were very similar in many ways and very different in others. But we were similar in that sort of... Well, what I know now in me is ADHD, and I think my dad probably is where I got it from. Um, I've only been diagnosed this year, but I couldn't settle at a job. I never got sacked because I was also very conscientious and I like people liking me. I don't like it if someone doesn't like me. So I never got sacked, but I would move jobs all the time. And my dad was the same. So he was, you know, one minute he was a whiskey salesman, then he was a hydraulic salesman, and Mm. then he'd do something. And then eventually he ended up... Yeah, running a sex shop in Great Yarmouth, which of all the places, just to add that extra twist of seediness to it. Um, And that was when I was in my sort of early twenties, I think. So my friends would get reams of free pornography. Because this is before streaming on the internet. It was I I became very popular (laughs) with the young men in my life, uh, particularly. What did your mum do? My mum and dad are so different that I, I sort of don't really understand how it ever... But I do know how they got together, because they lived on the same street when they were growing up. And um, my mum is... My mum was one of nine children and lived in a sort of council house in Swanley in Kent and um, is just the sweetest lady you'll ever meet. She's so... And out of her nine brothers and sisters, she's the sort of middle one. And... Um, she's the quiet one they're all musicians singers Mm. show-offs all of them and my mum would just sit in the middle of it all reading a book and watching it she's an observer you know but um she's very clever my mum. but she went to again went to school at a time when she was a girl on a council estate um a catholic school and she was just told she was rubbish you know was just told that all was in her future was going to secretarial college and That was it. And and it wasn't until sort of later in life when she went back to college, um, studied, you know, and and got really good jobs. She became a sort of health and safety manager on building sites, like, you know, telling sort of big burly men what they should be doing and what they've been doing wrong and kind of, she's great. And she, oh, Tina, what have you been eating? Sorry, we're having a bit of a disaster here from Tina's backside. See what I mean? She does these sort of peripatetic poos, it's weird.
1: Never seen another dog do it
0: like that. No, Ray does it. Does it? Oh good, I'm glad it's not just you, Tina.
1: So when you were growing up, what were you, what sort of a child were you, Angela?
0: I was a really anxious child, terribly anxious about everything. And I think that's very much my mum's quite an anxious person. I think I get that from her side of the family maybe a bit more. But it would, my dad dealt with it, maybe not in the best way, because he was doing what he thought was right, but his way to sort of try and deal with my anxiety was to try and force me into situations where I'd have to deal with it. You know, it's a chuck them in the swimming pool and they'd swim. Yeah, and hopefully they won't drown. And hope <laughs> they won't drown sort of scenario. And so my life was just this sort of series of my dad trying to push me into doing things. I was really being anxious and it just wasn't really, and I know it came from a good place and he was just trying to sort of, he thought he could, get that side out of me. But it's just in my DNA. It was never going to stop, you know. And, and he, in retrospect now, I think, well, it's probably set me up quite nicely for a world of stand up comedy, because he'd also, his other thing that I think he thought would make me stronger was just to humiliate me at any given yeah. opportunity, you know, to just really embarrass me was his favourite pastime. <laughs> he'd do things like I'd be, you know, when I was sort of 16, 17 and started going to the pub with my friends. And um, my dad was involved with this kind of charity group. Hello, what a beautiful dog. Hello, it's a bag of poo, you don't want that. Hello, <laughs> what
1: a lovely dog.
0: Gorgeous. But yeah, so his, he would, with his friends, they'd do like a charity pub crawl and my dad had deliberately come to the pub I was in with all my friends when I was 16, dressed as like Homer Simpson or something. <laughs> you know, and I'd hide in the loos. And of course my friends all loved him. They thought he was brilliant. Because that's the thing about a fun dad fun to everyone else but yeah (laughs) it can be really humiliating when you're a shy teenage girl you know were you happy as a as a kid yeah I was it it was sort of I was in a weird place so I went to because I went to school in Kent where they still have the grammar school system academically it served me well and I really liked school I had good teachers were you popular I was in the middle I'd say I wasn't definitely wasn't one of the popular girls. I definitely wasn't one of the cool girls. I was very shy. No one who went on to become a comic ever was, no. because... No. Only Joel Domit. That's it. <laughs> I always say that to Joel. I love Joel Dommit, But I say, you're supposed to be a rock star. This isn't for you. You're beautiful and popular. You're not supposed to be a comedian.
1: Were you quite... Because I know you were saying you'd been diagnosed as an adult with adult ADHD. Yeah. I had... We've talked about this, because I similarly had the diagnosis. And yeah. I wonder if, looking back on your childhood now it helps make sense of, of oh, certain
0: aspects of your childhood
1: oh and, god and yeah i it? was
0: i was very so i present very typically as a woman with adhd so like many people you know you hear adhd you think of naughty boys kicking chairs over not doing their homework you know not being able to sit still not being able to concentrate whereas for me it was all my like i said i was a really anxious child because i just i was super eager to please all the time and the thought that i might not get top marks or that i might not you know a teacher might be cross with me or anything like that it gave me such anxiety that sometimes it would give me complete paralysis to be able to do something you know and i knew it wasn't i was never just lazy because a lazy person doesn't get themselves into a state a lazy person isn't hyperventilating because they've not done their homework you know and and it was just this what i now know they've got the fancy words for it: or executive dysfunction where something in your brain was so worried about the rejection of getting it wrong, you just couldn't do it. And that's what my childhood was like. So to, from the outside, I was really high achieving at school. At primary school, I was moved up a year. You know, I was really... Um, it all looked fine, but it was the swan thing. You know, underneath I was paddling furiously and so anxious, so worried. Also, my whole childhood, all I can think of is, is being worried. and. Uh, and I don't really even know what about, just about not pleasing someone or not being the best at something. And mm. and I would, you know, my mum said that... Not being perfect. Not being perfect. And that there was this thing, this sort, this sort of narrative about my childhood is that I was bored easily. Um, but I think what was actually going on... So I would do activities for a bit, I'd like do brownies for a bit and then I'd stop. I'd do... I was a majorette for a bit and then I'd stop. And I think it wasn't that I got bored. It was that the minute I saw that this was an activity that I wasn't going to be the best at. What's the point? What's the point in going back there? I'm not going to be the best at it. Mm. And it's only really been, I'd say, in my 40s, that I've discovered the joy of doing things I'm not very good at. And I started like... It was, uh, during the pandemic, I was such a blooming textbook pandemic. I bought a sewing machine, I learnt to crochet. <laughs> and it's terrible. I mean, my poor friends are getting a load of crocheted tat for Christmas. <laughs> That they're just gonna to have to smile sweetly and, and you know hide in their houses. You say that, but Tom Daly, he's brought it back again, right? Who knew? I'd be cool. But I um, can make a little dog jacket for Tina. Oh, I could,
1: I don't. Do you do dog clothes? I don't really do. I dog don't. Clothes. She
0: wore wa- for our wedding. I had um, she was sort of as part of the bridal party, but she had um,
1: oh look, hello. Hi. Oh, what's going oh. on here? Are you cutting the trees, just up, over the
0: ah. Oh. Oh, I see. I thought that'd be quite a fun job being a tree surgeon, just sort of spending your day. Well, also, tree. you get the title with S- with none oh, of this none none <laughs> data. <laughs> I'm taking it wrong. I'm sure they do some. <laughs> oh my god, he heard us. Move quickly, oh, really. He's got a chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> um, but oh
1: dear. What yeah, we that's doing? interesting. That that idea that if I can't be the best there is no point doing it and actually yeah. it's interesting because it's almost like what you've got is 70 percent of that if you call it the ronaldo gene yeah you know the winner's gene yeah but what you haven't got is ronaldo's self-belief yeah so well, you can't I, see
0: it through i think that is the combination that makes a comedian I, th- I can't remember who said it i think it might have been stephen fry or someone i can't remember but and it really rang home to me that the thing that makes you a comedian rather than you know, an actor, musician, any other sort of performer, is a desire to show off and say, look at me, look at me, I want you to look at me, while also utterly hating yourself and being full of self-loathing. And that, that's what makes you a comedian, is you're like, look at me, don't look at me, I'm terrible, but look at me. You know, and it's that combination. Because it, I mean, who, in the, who is secure in themselves would drive 200 miles to stand in front of a room full of strangers for 20 minutes, begging them to laugh at your stories and then get in a car and drive 200 miles home again for no money. Who does that? Who's secure and happy in their life? No one. It's mad, it's an actual madness. Come on, Tina. Come of them. So,
1: it's really interesting to me that you talk about, performing I can totally see why performing feels instinctive for you mm. with the kind of person that you were yeah. and, and are and yet you didn't obviously you didn't re- become a stand-up until you lost your dad yeah and up until that point you went to university didn't you Angela? and you did what was your degree? I did
0: linguistics at Sussex um, I, but I, I fell apart at university because all the structures that had sort of kept me in place at school and despite all the ADHD and all the anxiety and everything that's going on that was just not noticed or picked up on, as soon as I got to university with no structure and no sort of you know if you're not at this class at this time there's going to be we'll have words with your parents, as soon as that all went I just couldn't cope at all and I really broke down at university so I never graduated. Mm. I just couldn't cope and now I know why and it's really what's been really nice since being diagnosed, is to go back to that time in my life, which was a really dark time, my sort of, throughout my 20s, really, and be able to sort of understand it now and know what was going on. She's going kind of bonkers off Alina. She does love an autumn leaf, does Tina.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you having fun? Tina
0: is... I've never seen a creature <laughs> so in love with life. Oh, she's a happy dog. She's a properly happy dog.
1: <laughs> but then after that... Did you you just you started to work in was it health and yeah health so and social care when I was at
0: university I worked in an old people's home, like as a part time job. I really loved it. Like there was bits of it that were hard and it was terribly paid as it still is care work. At the university in the first year they had like a a little place you could go to a little office you could go to where they had sort of jobs for students, and you could like a little job centre for students. Mm. And I went along there and and it was just randomly I saw this advert for carers at this nursing home and it's something I'd never considered really um even though like both my parents were in St John's ambulance and did things like that they were quite sort of but it never occurred to me and I um went along for the interview and got the job and I just loved it I'd work night shifts on a saturday night you know as mm. a student <laughs> if I was going out clubbing and I'd be off to do my night shift at the yeah I really lo- so when I sort of it all fell apart at university and I left and I was really aimless and didn't know what to do. And I wasn't well, to be honest, you know, I really wasn't well. And eventually I got better. I went and stayed with my mum for a bit in Ireland. And then as I was getting better, I was like, right, I need a plan. And so I went to do a nursing diploma. because I just thought, well, you really enjoyed that care work. Maybe Mm. do that. And then while I was doing the nursing diploma, again, because my family weren't well off, you know, so I didn't have loads of money to go and do my studies. And I had to work through, to support myself you mm-hmm. know. So I, I signed up with a, a social care agency and I was working in sort of hostels, mental health units, people learning disabilities, all sorts of stuff I did doing that while I was doing my nursing. And, and then I finished my nursing and I realised well actually the nursing isn't what I, it, it's the social care stuff that I enjoy. It's mm-hmm. the, Because with the nursing I felt a sort of patch them up, send them on. You know it's a little conveyor belt. You didn't get to know the people, you didn't get to really and what I liked about working in social care is you were working with people sort of on their whole lives you know their whole where they lived on maintaining their housing on their work on their social like you know on anything that they needed support with but you work with the same caseload of people and you got to know them Mm -hmm. and that suited me better I felt I was better at that so that's what I moved into and I worked um, in lots of different places and again like I say I I just moved around a lot with jobs because I would get this visceral kind of feeling of unrest if I stayed in one place too long. My friend Ian used to say to me that I, um, in the days where we'd have you know, proper address books that we'd write our friends' addresses yeah, in, yeah. he'd be like, you really mess up my address book. You'll just <laughs> cross it out every six months when you decide you want to live somewhere else. And I was just totally unsettled. You know, stand-up comedy is the longest job I've ever had by far, because no two days are the same, and, and there is a, an element of, of my control in it. You know, certainly in the point of the career I'm in now, well, I don't feel I have to say yes to everything. Mm. I can sort of pick and choose the jobs I want to do a bit more now, not completely. I've still got a mortgage to pay, but you know, I can be a bit more in control of things. And, and also now I've got this knowledge of my diagnosis. So I can work with it a bit more so I can sort of go well, okay, those sorts of gigs, for example, they used to give you panic attacks, so just don't do them. Whereas before, I'd see that as a failure in me. I'd be like, well, other people are able to do them. And particularly, I think, as a female comic, you compare yourself constantly to male comics because you feel like you have to be the same as them to succeed. And to a certain extent, that's the measure of success. You know, funny's funny, and if you you could do the same things they can do, then you're... But they're, they're not having to deal with certain things we're having to deal with, you know, like... Travelling home at three o'clock in the morning as a woman on your own from a gig, you know, or there's just things that male comics don't have to think about that we do.
1: Do you think there's also, every time you walk into a room as a woman, there's a sort of three minute, if you're lucky, period, whatever you're doing. Yeah. Where in front of an audience. Yeah. Where you feel you have to sort of sell yourself.
0: Yeah. You need You have it, to prove it, you're okay. Yeah. It's changing now because there's now so many female comics. Like you go particularly on New At nights, open mic nights, things like that, you see it's it's lots of women now. It's brilliant. Because when I started doing the circuit, I would always be the only woman on the bill. Always. There'd never be another woman. To the point where if there was, we'd go like, well someone's fucked up the booking here, you know, this yeah, is yeah. someone's messed this up. And so what that meant was the audiences weren't used to seeing women on stage, and when they did, they thought it was a, a booby prize. They thought, oh, excuse the pun, they thought it was... It that would be, like, be a great <laughs> comedy. <laughs> <if you got. laughs> that might be my show title, booby prize. I won't do that. <laughs> Write that down, someone. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was... Um, and, and, and you could sometimes walk out on stage and you'd see a room deflate a little bit. You'd see people sort of go, oh. And then you had to... You had to get a punchline in in the first, you know... 30 seconds, otherwise <laughs> they're not going to wait any longer than that for you to be because they'll have made up their mind. Yes, see, I knew women weren't funny. And that's the thing as well, as a woman in that time particularly, and I think it is getting better, but when you went out on stage as a woman, you weren't if you saw a man die on stage at a comedy club you'd go, that man's really bad at comedy if you saw a woman die on stage at a comedy club it was women are bad at comedy. Not that woman all women. So you, you had the pressure of your entire gender on your shoulders every time you perform, Every time you're on a panel show. every time. Because if you perform badly, it's not just you, it's your entire gender gets tarred with that brush. It's a lot of pressure <laughs> to take on stage, you know.
1: But you, you must have loved it enough to overcome... You said you're a people pleaser and you have yeah. anxiety. And yet <laughs> you were able to push on through because you obviously felt first time you went on stage something felt right about it
0: yeah yeah well I think that's the I think there's this sort of idea because I know for a, a lot of people possibly the majority of people the idea of doing stand-up comedy makes them feel physically sick yeah. it's that sort of because people say to you all the time oh, you're so brave I remember MC in a gig once and I was chatting to someone in the front row and he was a paramedic this guy and his mate next to him was a fireman and I was talking to them and we were having a little bit of banter, you know, and in the break he came up and he said to me, oh, you're so brave. I said, like, you're a fireman and a paramedic. Are you insane? What I do is not brave. What you do is brave. You know, and it's sort of embarrassing for a paramedic to think that I'm brave. But what they mean is, is that public speaking isn't for everyone. And did you
1: find, We were saying how you found it... So you obviously felt quite natural.
0: Well, I think what it is, so, and again, now there's a lot of these traits in myself. I can now go, oh, that's ADHD. I know that now, which I didn't necessarily know at the time. And one of them is I I never feel comfortable in social situations with people I don't know, particularly if there's lots of people, partly because I'm hard of hearing. So the minute there's more than four people in a room, I can very easily lose track of, you know, I've got quite good hearing aids now, but when I used to just rely on lip reading, it was a disaster. Did you have so that, that make when you me were quite young Angela? I, I started losing my hearing when I was about 18, which is not an ideal time when you're sort of already of socially awkward and a bit weird and that's when my hearing, so I've got something called tympanic sclerosis, so it's um, like calcium deposits on my eardrums Yeah. and it just means my eardrums don't vibrate properly and it's you sort of degenerative.
1: There's a brilliant bit of your stand-up which you have also done on radio when you were in bed with a guy. <laughs> <And>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, um, so I, I had, the, the problem I had was caused by, I had ear infections all the time when I was a kid, something called glue ear, which never went away from me, usually does, and it caused it, every now and then, my eardrums would, uh, per, uh, would perforate, would burst, and it was horrible when it does, it's icky, it's pussy, it's bloody, it's not very nice, and yes, I used to have a joke, at these lovely polite people walking past, I'm going to wait till they walk past <laughs> before I say my punchline. So, <laughs> <laughs> <to> this particular. Do <laughs> I have a bit where I'd say um, I just I didn't want to be right on the line as these lovely people, because <laughs> I'd say uh, yeah that it happened once during sex, and the guy was like, oh my god, I've actually fucked her brains out. <laughs> 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 I haven't done that bit for ages I've I've almost forgotten it then
1: I remember listening to that and it just made me laugh (laughs) so loud you know those laughs you do when the dog gives you an outrage look (laughs) the look of outrage like how dare you enjoy yourself I'm not involved in this Um,
0: oh dear so, so yeah that's sort of but I think being on stage That anxiety goes because the thing about being on stage with a microphone in your hand is it's always your turn to speak Mm. so i have that anxiety in social situations that either i'm talking too much or i'm not talking enough or that sort of turn taking and which is a typical adhd thing and i i didn't know that's what it was but it would make me really that in my internal monologue would always be going like you're annoying this person why are you annoying this person (laughs) you know in and i couldn't whereas on a stage i don't have to worry about taking turns i don't have to it's always my turn to speak i've got their attention and i'm i know i'm allowed to talk for 20 minutes and and it's fine no one's going to be like well she banged on about herself a bit um because that's literally my job <laughs> you know so it takes that anxiety away a little bit that's yeah. not to say i don't get nervous about gigs because yeah. i i do and i'm i'm the worst person i'm one of those people who will infect everyone else with their nerves Really? So, you know, other comics will be sat backstage and they're feeling fine about the gig and I'll come in and go, God, this audience look a bit rough, don't they? You know? <laughs> and then suddenly they're as nervous as I am. So I have to be really self-aware about that. And if I'm really nervous, just take myself away from the other acts so I don't infect them.
1: Are you quite a pessimist, Angela?
0: I think I am, but I don't mind it because I think if you're a pessimist, you're rarely disappointed. You're only ever ha- pleasantly surprised. Yeah. You know? If you go through life expecting the worst outcome then when it doesn't happen that's great but when it does well you knew it was going to happen so you were prepared for it which might seem a bit bleak but it served (laughs) me well
1: (laughs) 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 so your career really took off it was around 2008 wasn't it
0: well it was 2008 I started well no it was 2009 I did um because I started off I did a stand-up comedy course which I know people have got mixed sort of views about them for me it was the only way i would have started because i used to book gigs i knew a lot of comedians and the thought of getting up in front of them and failing as we know i've got a terrible fear of failure and and in front of people i knew and failing w- was just too much I could, so i thought if i do a course i've got a safe space to have a go at this and see yes. if i can do it so my first gig was 2009 it was like the showcase at the end of the course at comedia in brighton um and then i did um I think the, the turning point was in 2011, I won the BBC New Comedy Awards. Yeah. Did you hear that noise? No, did I miss something?
1: Oh, I don't... Oh, I'm so sorry, it called... I, was... it, it, I called you by mistake in my, in my bag, I'll turn the phone off. I do apologise. I miss-dialed, yeah, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Thank you. I will do, thank you,
0: bye-bye. Is that emergency services accident? Oh, look.
1: So, I just called the emergency services. Wait for
0: the, police the SWAT team to turn up now. By mistake. God, I wonder if they have been listening to our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be hilarious. are these two I mean, women banging on about. <laughs> and also,
1: what they will have heard whilst they were on hold listening to our conversation was Angela
0: saying, I prefer to be a pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, they probably think something, I'm planning something awful in the woods. They've triangulated where your phone is. Oh no. Because that way you don't get disappointed. That's definitely the words of someone who's about to do something terrible in the woods, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) it's awful. Oh Oh dear. Oh my god. They must get that all the time. Yeah, they must get that all the time. Let's go down here. So Sorry, yeah, what were we...
1: Oh, we were rudely interrupted oh, yeah. by 999. <laughs> I, can I just apologise to everyone at the emergency services? Yeah, that was
0: an accident, and we're not, you know, making light of it, obviously. No. But, um, yeah. So... <laughs> so, yeah, the, yeah. Um, 2011, I won the BBC New Comedy Award, so that was the moment I sort of went, oh, maybe I can do this. You know enough comedians to know that we're, we're not the most... Um, well, there's two types of comedians. They're the ones who do think they're brilliant and the ones who'll never think they're any good at all. I think when you, when you start out and you're on the open mic circuit, and God bless them, you know, there's a lot of slightly deluded people on the open <laughs> mic circuit in comedy that get up week after week for a decade and get no response from an audience and yet still think they've done all right and carry on. And mm. so I would get up at the same gigs and, you know, do. Oh yeah, I wasn't great, I, well, you, no one's great when they start out. But then I was like, well, am I deluded like these people? You know, am I hearing laughs that aren't really there? Am mm. I? You've got no way really of knowing how well you're doing. And so it wasn't till somebody else suggested that I entered the new comedy awards in, yeah, 10 years ago. And um, I went, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. And, I, and it was a, an agent, not my agent, but an agent who happened to be at the gig. who said, I didn't have an agent at the time. He said, I think you should. So I sort of did on a bit of a win, and then I ended up winning it. And that was kind of my sort of, oh, okay. Well, maybe this can be a job eventually, you know, that maybe this isn't just a hobby now, maybe this is something else. And it was another couple of years before I gave up the day job entirely. But that was, yeah, the sort of moment where you go, oh, other people think I'm all right at this. Yeah. Oh, look at that lovely. Yeah, oh, it's an old fellow, isn't it? You're an old fella. Oh, I thought that was a man you were saying that to. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: meant the dog. I was going to say it's in his 40s. <laughs> Actually, you've got to be so careful saying it's an old fella. i <laughs> um, myself
0: in so much trouble.
1: And since then, I mean, I first became aware of you on Mock the Week, which right, you're yeah. so brilliant on. And oh, thank you. I know people do talk about that show being intimidating and terrifying and a bare fit and having such respect for the people that do it. And you've always said you, you enjoy it and you don't experience that.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's changed a lot, the show. I think in its early days, when it was, let's face it, all men, all young men, all hungry young men trying to prove themselves on the show, that it was a difficult show to do. And then, you know, you'd have the occasionally they'd allow token woman to come on the show and they're suddenly faced with this very alpha male energy and that's hard you know and also because we're used to when you put on a stand-up show we're not in competition with each other in a comedy club you know we're putting on a show together and there's a nice camaraderie and then suddenly if you're in an environment where suddenly you feel you're competing with your peers yeah it's just not a nice feeling really and um and i think like dara will say now that the show is completely different Largely because him and Hugh have got older and they can't be bothered with it, <laughs> you know. And also because there's more women on the show, so that just brings a different energy. And, the, and the young comics aren't behaving that way so much now. I think there's an understanding that a panel show is better when everyone works together to make it good rather than trying to just outdo each other. Yeah. You know, there are long recordings, the they can be three hours long for a you know, half an hour show. And... So a lot of what you do in that recording won't make the edit, it won't be in the final show. And it can be exhausting if it's three hours of just battle. And I think everyone's realised that now. And so it just isn't anymore. It's just, it's nice. It's, it's hard work because we cover a lot. There's a lot of stories to cover and things. What you see in the final edit is a real tip of the iceberg. And if you come to a recording of Mot the Week, I think people come to the recording and think, oh, that'll be a nice half an hour in a TV studio. (laughs) Three hours later, they're still sat there going, I'm missing my bus. It's a slog of a show too, so it can be tiring and it can be, and because it's topical, you know, you're preparing right up to the minute for it.
1: Come here, Tina. But yeah, that's interesting what you say about Mock the Week. Um, Because I, I mean, I feel, I'm a huge fan of yours and I love your work and I, I'm always, whenever I see your name, I often—you're the kind of person I will type your name into podcasts. Oh, bless you! Just to see. Oh, I feel like some Angela,
0: because oh. I know if
1: you're on it, I'll like it. And oh, I want to mention a really brilliant podcast you do, which um, I hugely recommend. I'm gonna—we had some people passing me, <laughs> and it was a bit, Angela was a bit embarrassed. <laughs> oh, they're
0: looking at me! I think you're
1: quite <laughs> self-effacing, and you wouldn't like to be boastful. Is that was that Yeah, i am
0: not I'm not like I, I'm not at that level of, you know, I'm not famous and I'm not I don't get recognised very often but i sometimes people will realise that they recognise me but not know where from or who I am and then they'll think that they've worked with me is the main one. But we worked I, I think we've worked, I know you don't, I think we've worked together. And I'm so embarrassed to say do you watch Mot the Week or you might have seen me on whatever and then I do think, well what if what if it is that we just use the same ASDA? You know, what if it is that, and it isn't that they've seen me on What the Week, then I'll sound like a right idiot if I've gone, well, actually, do you watch telly? You know, so I, I find the whole thing really awkward. Oh, here we are. We're at the map. Read what it says, Angela. Oh, the old Stadman Orchard. Oh, wow. Ooh, there's like a big greenhouse around here. That sounds there? like such a euphemism.
1: I'm having problems with me old Stamner Orchard. orchard. Eh? <laughs> Your old Stamner Orchard playing up again, is it? I hope like they roast cranberries. <laughs> oh dear. So, you did this um, brilliant podcast with uh, John O'Farrell. Yes. And it's called We Are History. Yes. And I so recommend it to Thank everyone you. because it's. It's really fascinating. And you tackle subjects. I mean, I was listening to one recently you did on Robert Maxwell. Oh, yes. And then you'll do one on the winter of discontent or Watergate. Yeah. But what's so brilliant is that you learn so much. It's kind of chatty and funny. And, um, but you come away really learning about a subject. But it's like you have a really smart couple of friends who've told you. It's,
0: the sort of vibe we want is a kind of like we're chatting down the pub. Yeah. you know because john and i both love a beer and we talk about that quite a lot on the podcast and we both love a pub and particularly during the pandemic when we couldn't go to the pub it was we wanted to sort of create that but but so we're i'm, I'm i never studied history i did history gcse i think i got b and then that was it oh, that. and um so i approached john so john o'farrell if you don't know, he's um, he was, like, one of the lead writers on the original Spitting Image, very funny, ma- written lots of funny books, lots of novels. Um, and he and I were sort of Twitter friends. He'd come to see a show of mine in Edinburgh and had written a nice tweet about it, and I sort of tweeted him to say thank you. And I was a fan of his history books. He'd written some sort of silly history books that I'd listened to the audio books of in my car when I was driving to gigs. And I really wanted to do a history podcast because I sort of, as an adult, had become a bit of a history nerd. Mm. And... Um, so I just thought, well, if you don't ask, you don't get it. You know, so I sort of messaged him on Twitter a few years ago. So I really want to do a history podcast. Do you fancy doing it with me? And he said, yes. And that was that. So That's and a it's real lesson, real, isn't it? It's our real passion. Pro- like, it's the thing I love doing most and the thing that pays me least, which is always the way, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, we, may, we lose money on it, but we love doing it. And it's, it's a lot of research. It's a lot of reading and a lot of um, prep. But, yeah, people seem to really like it and i think people who might not have thought they'd like a history podcast quite like it because you sort of learn by stealth yeah really it's it's sort of it's two people who are quite funny chatting in a sort of funny way about serious yeah. things
1: i love it so much oh, you know what else i need to ask you about yeah i'm so excited because i saw your wedding pictures <sighs> ah and (laughs) it just looked so lovely
0: do you know it was it was a a mad day um it was beautiful so we got married in september 2021 and it was just after all the restrictions had been lifted from the pandemic so we could have the wedding we wanted and we were so lucky because we hadn't had to move the day i mean we were super lucky And we had, we got married, we had a humanist ceremony in the um, meeting house at Sussex Uni, which is, I love a bit of brutalist architecture. I love concrete, I should, my wedding ring is made of concrete. And the concrete, the aggregate for the concrete is Brighton Beach pebbles. And your so, other half
1: has the Berlin Wall. And the
0: other half, he has the Berlin Wall as cufflinks. But we both have a concrete wedding ring and I've got my engagement ring also a square of concrete. So I just love concrete buildings and a brut- bit of brutalism. So, and the meeting house at Sussex University, it's a Basil Spence designed sort of 19, early 70s building, like a circular concrete building with these amazing stained glass windows that are just really colourful. So, we had the ceremony in there, and then, no, you're not going to eat that plantain. I know you want to, but I'm not going to let you. Um, but it was basically like a little festival in a field in Lewis on the downs, and it was a beautiful, sunny weekend. I mean, it couldn't have been yeah. more perfect, but the day was very. Um, difficult because um and you might not have known this mm-hmm. from social media i don't know if, but um my really good friend and was also my tour support um phil gerrard who was going to be a witness at our wedding he sadly passed away on the morning of my wedding and he's one of my best friends and he had cancer um and he'd been really poorly um and sort of knew it was coming but we didn't think it was coming that quickly and um two days before my wedding we had to do the registry office bit because it was a humanist wedding so we went to do that and i we were just sort of having a bit of lunch afterwards so we were illegally married and um and like i say phil ha- was going to be one of our witnesses and sadly just wasn't well enough to to do that so we said well we'll go and do it and then we'll come and see you afterwards and he just the day before he'd just really dramatically taken a bit of a turn and we went to see him well we just sort of got a call we were having some lunch after the ceremony and uh, just said you know i think it might be today so we went and saw him and, um, you know, I'm really glad we did because we sort of had our, I wasn't in my wedding dress, but I still had a nice dress on and Matt was in a mm-hmm. suit, and we were sort of, you know, so he was part of that day. And um, and then, yeah, sadly, I got the call sort of 20 past five on the morning of my wedding and I'd got a text that said he'd gone. And it was, it was I just didn't really know what to do because you sort of think, am I supposed to cancel my wedding? Like my best friend's just, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. And then his wife, who's also a good friend, she saw, she got in touch and she said, you know, Phil would be really upset if he thought he'd ruined your wedding day. You have to go and, her exact words were, you have to go and smash this wedding, yeah. you know. And, and in a strange way, it's, it's hard to describe, but it somehow made perfect sense that it happened on that day, because I think if it happened any other day, mm. a lot of his friends were at that wedding, a lot of people who knew and loved him. Yeah. He was also tour support for Romesh, Ron was at the wedding you know, we were all together. And if he died, say on the Sunday, we might have all been in different places, you Mm. know, and and not knowing what to do with ourselves. But as it was, we were at an event where we were celebrating something and him and Beck were very much became part of the, you know, we talked about them in our speeches. We very much made them part of the day even though they weren't there. So in a a way, it all sort of made sense. And he was part of our day, you know, um, It's funny uh, because we're both with the same agent and uh, as she said to me that morning, his agent said to me, you know, half expecting him to phone me and go, Angela, uh, Flo, I've really messed up here. I need you to sort this out. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, it was.
1: Oh, Angela, how lovely. So it it was a day
0: sort of tinged with sadness, but just a beautiful, beautiful day. And in some ways made, just made it more special and made you make the most of it more because you just go, well, you never know, do you what's. Around the corner, and, exactly. um, and yeah. what a special day
1: that it, you will associate him with that day. Absolutely, he was
0: part of it. Mind out, Tina.
1: Yeah. And it, I get the sense as well that you really feel when you met your husband that it was that sense of what took you
0: so long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, we were in our late 30s when we met, um, and we didn't, you know, we'd, he proposed to me week one of lockdown one, which was a brave move, really, because, <laughs> you know, we'd never spent that much time together, as it turned out, it was fine. But he, um, and he had three hilarious failed proposal attempts, but he finally managed it. And, uh, yeah, I think, because we've both been, we've been together sort of seven years, and we both had that kind of, Uh, particularly him, I think at the first, like, well, if you haven't got kids, what's the point really in getting married? And Mm -hmm. then it was his friend, Andy, who was also his best man, got married. And we went to their wedding. And suddenly it was like, for both of us, it was a bit of a click moment. It was a bit of a, oh, I get it now. I see it was such a beautiful wedding. And I think for us, it it was a sort of way of going, because we, you know, we met a bit older. We've both got a history, both got a past. And for us, the wedding was a way of going, this is the real one. Mm. This is the, this is different to the others. You know, this is the one we mean and it forever. Mm. Um, and it was just, it was incredible. And we, we both of us thought, you know, oh, we'll get married and then we just go back to exactly the same life and it'll feel the same. And, but it does, it, something changes. It's really hard to explain.
1: What would he say, is it Matt your partner? Matt, yeah. What would Matt say if I said to him, what's the, what's the thing do you have to manage most about Angela? <laughs> oh
0: my God, where would you begin? He is very good at managing my um, sort of, like I say, I'm always the person who infects everyone with my nerves and part of my sort of process, if you like, for performing, yeah. I've learnt, is I, uh, the pessimist in me, I have to imagine the worst case scenario. So every gig I do, every show I do, every panel show I do, everything, I sort of go, think of all the reasons why it's going to be a disaster mm. and I have to go through all the reasons why it's going to be a disaster, say them out loud, make sure everyone knows that I know it's going to be a disaster and then it's fine. So Matt used to, when we first started, got together, you know, he used to go, oh, you'll be great, you'll be fine, you know, try and, and I'd be like, you don't understand, you don't get it, just stop, you know, it's not that easy, it's all right for you to say, that. whereas now I'll go, oh, it's going to be a disaster, he'll go, yeah, it might be. And that's exactly what I need, <laughs> is someone just to point out, you know, just go, yeah, it might be a disaster, but, you know, it's your job, so just do it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, sort, that's exactly the right thing to do. But would he say, if I said to him... What one thing would make your life easier if
1: Angela was a little bit less? Oh, my God.
0: Angela? (laughs) If she was just a little bit less? Everything. Just a little bit less. He's very steady, Matt. Like He's very consistent, very steady, which is very good for me. And I often think, what is he getting out of this? Because I'm just, (laughs) you know, up and down all over the place. Um, I think he would like it if I was a bit... Yeah, maybe a bit less histrionic. <laughs> a bit less. <laughs> yeah, just a bit less. <laughs> I
1: often ask people. I
0: don't feel I have to.
1: I would worry about asking you this. Sometimes I say to people, "Have you had therapy?" Mm. And I worry then that they feel that's a bit of a private thing to ask. So please, don't feel you have to
0: answer oh, it. Oh, I don't mind at all. I mean, I've had shed loads. <laughs> I've, I've had. I say shed loads. I, I sort of. I've ne- never been the sort of. I've never had kind of psychotherapy or... I've had lots of, um, uh, like in my 20s I was really quite unwell mentally and um, again you know I was misdiagnosed for 30 years with a a sort of depression at one point with bipolar with lots of you know I was on I was medicated for depression for so long Um, and you know I spent time in hospital I spent time um, just in a very in a bad way and so I had lots of um, interventions if you like in my 20s I had lots of had like CBT I had crisis teams I had all sorts of things um so that stuff I sort of it feels like a different me really when I talk about it mm. and the main thing for me has been the ADHD diagnosis has really made sense of all of that because what the, the depression and the anxiety and the, all came from a frustration of not being like everyone else and not understanding why I wasn't not meeting the same arbitrary life goals, not Mm. settling down, not being content, not being, you know, and, and I couldn't work out why everyone else was able to do it and I wasn't and just having a reason for it now has been, I mean my, when I had my assessment and the psychiatrist that I'm with now, he's so brilliant and he's so, it's just shone a light on so many things that it's not that I wasn't depressed. It was that I was depressed, but the root cause of it was never yeah. examined, you know, and I think part of that is to do with gender. I think very often if a woman's depressed, it's give her antidepressants, then that fixes it rather than looking at, yeah. you know, well, why? And particularly if there isn't a very obvious reason why, you know, if somebody's bereaved or if something, a big life event has happened or whatever, it can be very obvious why someone's depressed.
1: We've again. Hello, Hello, lovely to see you.
0: Yeah, my trouble. Yeah, oh, well,
1: lovely time. Yeah. You're
0: Occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no. Yeah, I was just saying. I said, oh, no one ever recognises me. They think they've worked with me. That's what. I'm... <laughs> Take it. Have a good day. bye Bye. <sighs>
1: There was a story I read once that I loved that you told, which was when you'd had a one-night stand. <laughs> I don't know if it was a one-night stand, but you'd had a, a romantic encounter mm. and you said you went on the tube and you were so happy because someone <laughs> recognised
0: you. I was with him. <laughs> and it made me look really good. <laughs> 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 it was funny, when I, I went on my first date with Matt, we, um, cause we met online um, and I hadn't said that I was a, a comedian I hadn't mentioned that before the date and uh, this is what, eight years ago and um, we, were, we went on the date and of course then we talked on the date and everything and because and Matt is um, he's a good-looking boy and he's very sporty well he's very athletic he runs does ultramarathons and things and he just got back from a climbing holiday in Spain he was all tanned and muscly and I walked in on this date and saw him and just immediately went well, there's no way this guy's going to be into me. Just no way. Like, it's completely different to anyone I'd ever dated, you know. And um, to the point where I remember going to the loo and taking my spanks off. So I was like, what's the point? No point in pretending anything here. This is going to be one date and you're going to go home and that'll be that. <laughs> and we, uh, we had a, you know, we just chat, chatted in this pub. And then at the end of the date, he said, uh, so I'd really like to see you again. And I went, are you sure? <laughs> he always reminds me of that. Then, that's right. then he went home from the date. And of course, I'd said I was a comedian by that point. But I sort of then, I'd, th- I'd done a bit of telly then, I think I'd, start- I'd done one Mock the Week, I'd done a bit of stuff. But I was about to do a run of shows at Soho Theatre the following week. And I'd sort of really underplayed, you know, I think he went away thinking it was maybe like a little hobby I had or something, I don't know. And um, sort of on the, on the way home, I didn't know, but he was on the mailing list of the Soho Theatre website and he got an email advertising my show to him on the way home. He was like, hang on a minute. <laughs> it's a girl I've just met in the pub. <laughs> He's like, I did ask you for a second date before I saw that.
1: (laughs) Do you think sometimes that it's when you think you're worthy of something that that comes into your life? Do you know what I mean? That that, sometimes you feel ready for that person or for a good thing to happen to you because you start to believe you deserve it. So you might have met him years ago, but you might have found a way for that not to happen.
0: I think so. I mean, I've had one of my biggest hang-ups forever, and we've talked about this before, is, you know, about my, the way I look. And I've all, that's always been what, whatever issues I've had, that's what they've hung on, is sort of uh, not being pleased with how I look. Um, so when I was younger, and this is something as well that, it's so funny, isn't it, how you view situations, how other people view situations, because if a guy spoke to me when I was younger, particularly if he was a good-looking guy or if he was, my default was that he was taking the piss, that he was, you know, talking to me for a bet or was you know one of those situations and I had this unbeknownst to me but I had this reputation amongst our friends of being like a bit of an ice queen to the boys because I would be I was shy and didn't want to talk to them and they thought I was just cold you know whereas actually I just thought I was protecting myself from them the obvious the inevitable humiliation they were going to cause me you know come on we're going this way come on I know you like men in high-vis, but we're going this way. Don't we all, <laughs> Oh, yes. Um, and I think it was only...
1: How interesting, that was the armour you were putting on. Yeah,
0: and, and I had no idea that that's how people saw me. I thought people thought I was shy, maybe or quiet or whatever, but I didn't realise they thought I was cold. And because mm. my friends knew I wasn't cold, they knew I wasn't a cold person, but I just, that was my, like, yeah, you're not, you're not gonna fool me. You know, I'm not gonna let you do that to me, so I'm just gonna be mm. aloof. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I think then what stand-up comedy gave me was, um, it was confidence, but it was also an opportunity, and this isn't necessarily healthy, and I'm, I'm really glad that young female comics don't do this now, but I think comics certainly in my age and older, what we do is we go out there and make all the jokes about ourselves and the way lo- we look before anyone else can, you know, um, be like, yes I'm overweight, yes I look like this, yes I blah blah blah, all the self-deprecating stuff, because that was our way of going, we do know we're not beautiful we do yeah. know we're not perfect we do know so you can't get us with that because we'll get there first mm. um and it, you know and while that is great for, for comedy you do sort of it's not necessarily a healthy way to be well
1: do you think also there's a difference between men doing that and women doing that that when men laugh at their appearance
0: that's not how men are valued and judged every single exactly. day of their lives exactly they're gonna you know they're not gonna not get on telly because they've got a pot belly. <laughs> You know, Yeah. I, I always get disappointed now when I turn up to do a radio show, and they're like, "We just give you pictures for socials." You're like, "The one thing <laughs> I love about doing radio is that <laughs> I don't have to brush I my did. hair." <laughs> you know? Can I just say, we
1: do take pictures <laughs> yeah, for socials,
0: but can yeah, I just say, share. we might well
1: crop you out
0: yeah. because <laughs> yes, we do don't if it's care too much about yeah. you. <laughs> it's all, all we about. We care this one about is Tina exactly, That's and not who true. wouldn't take? I mean, I don't mind Tina being objectified for her beauty because she is stunning. Who could go, Who could go. She's just. You're my baby. It's funny, isn't it, how I do think that if you have a dog and don't have children, your relationship with your dog is very different.
1: A lot of people ask me if it's a child substitute. Yeah. And I always say,
0: no, it's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> I say, and she's better than a child. I It's <laughs> not a substitute. She's better. Because she's never going to grow up to hate me. <laughs> it's great. It's brilliant. Um, I, just, I never had the calling to be a mother. It never came for me, really. It was not, you know... Um, but what I think surprised me and Matt, who felt very much the same about children as I did, that there was clearly something innate in us that's out of our control, that she has awoken, that we didn't really know was there. And I think that's why if you haven't got kids, but you have a dog, you do get a bit, you know, we, we swore we'd never be mummy and daddy, but we blooming are. We are with those people, and we every time we say it, we hate ourselves. But you, it's like it's just woken this beast in us. We didn't. Know. Sometimes I'll be with Ray, and I'll be picking up his poo, and so I'll be walking past, and I'll say, "Are you Mummy's good boy? <laughs> you Mummy's good boy."
1: I need to hear your Tina
0: voice. It's, oh, are it's, it's just Tina, and, and then Tina talks back, obviously, because we talk to each other through Tina. So, all right, Dad. On, all right, Dad. Yeah, I've had a lovely walk with Mummy. Yeah, she talks a bit like that. She's very Kent. Tina. <laughs> She was born in Kent as well. So yeah, that's Tina's voice, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Angela, we've loved to let Tina. Say goodbye, say goodbye, Emily. Like you like bring Raymond next time?
0: Oh yeah, I reckon you would get on all right, wouldn't you? Would
1: you like Raymond? I think he would be a really so. nice fit for you. Angela, I've loved our walk. Will oh, you give me a hug? Oh, thank you
0: so much. It was really lovely. And, um,
1: Will you get to, yeah, can I say goodbye really to nice. Tina? But I want Tina to say goodbye to Come me. Come
0: She knows we're about to get in the car and she did not like it. So she's a bit like, I oh, know I've seen the car and I'm not happy. Oh, boy, Emily. Yeah, I've had a lovely day. Thanks. Thanks, Emily, for the walk and that. And, um, yeah, I like the bit when I ran through the leaves. That was nice, wasn't it? Yeah, I like that bit. Yeah, I'm going to go and see my dad now. Yeah, yeah. All right. Sorry about my poos. I did a lot of poos. Sorry about that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.